Well, this morning, I have a BOGO for you. Buy one, get one. It came from a guy. (laughs) The man's man. So, by way of a rather elongated introduction to our text this morning, it really would... Uh, make a message all in and of itself. Um, and so you're saying, so why don't you just do that and cut it there, Pastor? See, I'm reading your mind, okay? No, that's not a spiritual gift. That's just knowing human temperament. But I also know that you are just so wrapped, so captivated, so on the edge of your seat that you leave here most Sundays going, more, more, no, don't say amen, right? <laughs> Thou shalt not lie, okay? <laughs> We've been in the book of 1 Samuel for many, many months now, and we'll continue to the end unless the Lord should return, and that would be great, because then I'll have to figure out the rest of this book. We've been talking about King Saul, and last week in particular, things are kind of coming to an ever-increasing and kind of escalating head concerning his kingship, and he's obviously, at least to us as readers from the outside looking in, he's losing control, and he's actually already lost control, as we're going to see, of those closest to him. Saul's been inquiring about David's whereabouts, who as far as Saul is concerned, and there's kind of an irony here, that where Saul is concerned, from his vantage point, David is public enemy number one. And I say there's kind of an irony here because in actuality, King Saul is public enemy number one. And the one that he views as public enemy number one is actually the nation's best friend. And maybe your head doesn't go there in the parallelism that's there. But Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Saul is losing control. Nobody is really even even sticking their neck out, even, again, those closest to him to help him. No one's offered him any information upon David's whereabouts, nor does it even seem like anyone is really even looking or care to be looking. And Saul's having a tantrum that we saw last week. And in the course of that tantrum, he's trying to basically buy the loyalty and the affections of his inner circle. He's trying to buy it back from whatever happened to it. But we happen to know, because of the benefit of having the scriptures in front of us in their completion, as far as the Lord was concerned, wanted complete, we know what happened to it. What happened to it was that from the get-go, the Lord never wanted Saul to be king in the first place. This goes back to the earliest chapters. But the people were basically in rebellion against the king on high, completely blew off his prophets and their counsel from on high concerning Saul that he was not the right guy for the job. But the people said, no, but we want Saul. And so God said in those foreboding words, give them what they want. And as I mentioned back then, that's not usually a good thing. So in God's wisdom, he's let this run its course. But again, God has been very much at work as we've seen over the many months that we've been in this book. And he has decided that it's time now for a change of leadership. And he is bringing that about. The Lord Most High is 
not, nor has he ever been just this disengaged deity who started the universe rolling and then walked away to possibly return sometime and possibly get a little more involved or not. That is deism. That is not the God of the scriptures. It's not what the Bible tells us. In fact, in the words of Daniel that I mentioned before, and it's repeated verbatim three times in the book of Daniel, that the Lord Most High, who is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes, is orchestrating the affairs of mankind to bring about his plans and his purposes for the immediate, for the near, and for the distant future of the world. And if we believe this, and we better believe it, it spawns many questions about the past, about the present, and about the future. And while we are given many answers in the Bible to many of the questions that we've had and that human beings have had from the very beginning, in the cumulative scheme of things, the fact of the matter is, is that we know next to nothing about anything when you get right down to it. Let me try and convince you of this for a minute here. I have a, 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 con, a conversation starter that I really have grown fond of over the years because it's kind of one of those mic drop situations, at least in my mind. And so I really always kind of relish the fact of getting someone who is honest enough to say to me, you know what, flat out, I am an atheist. Like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> Good on you, not really, but at least you have the integrity to quit playing the game of the agnostic, you see. The agno there is no such thing as an atheist, even worse, an agnostic. Because an agnostic says, not only do I not believe that there is a God, but you cannot know whether there is a God. Now, people don't even understand that's the definition of what an agnostic is, but that is what it is. The word agnoeo from the Koine Greek means without knowledge. And, of course, the scriptures tell us that there's no such thing as an atheist. Romans chapter 1 is very clear about that. People can take that knowledge of God that he says he's put into everybody and repress it and suppress it and categorically reject it out of hand if that's what they want to do. But then what follows in the latter half of chapter 1 also are the consequences of doing so. So we come to this idea of the knowledge of God and person who says he's an atheist. So I like to play with them a little bit. And I usually have a piece of paper with me and I'll, I'll draw a circle on this piece of paper and I'll say, now this circle is all of the knowledge that there can be gotten in the universe. Not just at this present time, but from the past, from the present, and knowledge that we don't, humankind hasn't even run into yet, all the way into the future. I'm talking about comprehensively all that can be known throughout eternity. What percent of knowledge would you say that you have? This is really eye-opening. You talk about the level of arrogance of mankind. You know what arrogance is? I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It means thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. So I love it. So here it is. And I say, so just here, I'll give them a pencil or pen, and I'll say, just, you know, kind of color in or whatever on this little circle the amount or the percentage, if you will, of knowledge, all knowledge that there is to be. Not just knowledge current up to today, which that would still be extraordinary, Right? We don't know. I mean, you know, we can learn some things from the past, 
But if you go back even, what, 30 years, how many people would have foreseen uh, an iPhone, right? Or some of the other things, and, and you know, I mean, con- conceptually ideas about that, but I mean, the iPhone, I mean, Steve Jobs, he didn't get his start till what, the 80s, right? Well, actually, I gotta go back more than 30 years. See, I forget how old I'm getting. Okay, so go back 50 years, and anyway. I remember watching the Jetsons as a kid. It was my favorite cartoon show. I had this thing about the future, you know, and just about how cool it would be to have things in your house, you know, like a Rosie the Robot that you could speak to or something. And then my favorite, though, was their car and zipping around and flying in this flying car and everything else. Right? But that still doesn't exist. But the iPhones do. And we can talk to our missionary children in Central America immediately, not just talk to them, but look at them, right? We've come a long way. So imagine the things that are yet to remain to be discovered in the way of knowledge. And again, we're talking about only fractions of things. So, So, okay, Mr. Atheist, so tell me, what percent of knowledge would you say that you have of all that there is? Most frequent answer? is around 10%. And I'm like, (laughs) well, okay. I've had as high as 30%. So I kind of go, let me run this by you again. I'm talking about all the knowledge. I'm not just... So anyway, it doesn't matter what they say because nobody has ever come close to saying 100%. Now here's what I do with that. So okay, you're saying, Mr. Smarty Pants... 30% of all the knowledge that ever, you know, that there can be in all eternity. You've got 30%. All right. So that still leaves 70%. And so are you telling me that the knowledge of God could not be residing in that 70% of knowledge that you've already admitted you don't have any knowledge of? Unless, by definition... That person is mentally insane or unhitched in some way, which is coming more and more reality as we go on in life today. They will usually just be there in silence, realizing they just kind of put themselves into a corner of at least having to acknowledge that, yes, it's possible there could be a God. We know so very little So now we come to the workings of a God who, as I said, is all-knowing, which means, again, he knows everything all at once. He doesn't just come to know of everything, you know, as we go along, and so he's got this great memory and all this. No, he's outside of time, so past, present, and future doesn't even exist. It's, It's not, he's outside of it, so he has all knowledge All the time. And so now we come and we read or we hear of situations for which we don't even know the beginning, much less any really of of every detail of what we think we know. And yet in those situations, we are quite willing to protest and push back against the very judgment of the all-knowing one, even impugning his character and questioning his goodness. And what often follows are innumerable iterations of why God and how come? Well, if there's this good and loving God, how come and why doesn't he? And if he could, and and ending frequently with some version of, well, if I were God, yeah, stop right there. 
So a really good passage giving us clarity to our innate flaw of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought comes from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome in chapter 9. The context there is the Holy Spirit, who of course is God, who knows everything, has anticipated many of the questions, actually anticipate many. He knows all the questions that mankind is ever going to put forth. And so he, in his grace and mercy, dispenses the answers to many of those questions. Not all of them, but many of them. So the context that we're talking about in Romans 9 is about the, to us, seemingly ghastly unfair way in which God dealt with Isaac and Rebekah's twins named Jacob and Esau. Let me read from Romans chapter 9 about this. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to Rebekah by God, the older will serve the younger. You see, that just was not done in that day. The first one born was the one who was it, meaning rights to inheritance, all of that. So God steps in and says, well, we're going to reverse that for this situation because of my plans and purposes. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say to this then? See, again, the Holy Spirit anticipating. Wait a minute. What do you you mean? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Even before they were born, what do we say to this? There's no injustice with God, is there? And the, the word in the Koine Greek or the phrase is megenata, which means that no, no way, uh-uh, not in any way, shape, or form is there a shred of injustice in God. For he says to Moses, though, and so here's kind of the answer, not all that satisfying, but still, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, period. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, oh, here we have another allusion here to another situation that is just as troublesome to the likes of us who are so bound by our fraction of knowledge that it gives us angst. And understandably so. And again, the Spirit of God anticipated that and so helps us out with it. So now what's he talking about here with Pharaoh? This refers to when God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go to go worship me in the land where I would take you into the land of promise. And so he approaches Pharaoh ten times and ten times Pharaoh softens every bone along the way and then he starts compromising and say, okay, you can go, but each time God brings a plague and I mean utter nastiness onto Pharaoh, which is why Pharaoh keeps repenting and relenting and going, okay, this time I really mean it. Go ahead and do everything you want to do there in the wilderness, only leave this behind. And Moses says, no, no deal. We're not taking any, any restrictions, nothing. Let me go. So, okay. So now what we're getting is we're getting a future view here from God's perspective of what's going on. And the words that's used in the scriptures is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're like, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, it's a good question. Why did he do it? Well, he did it for this very purpose. I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then God has mercy on whom he desires and God hardens whom he desires. Now, again, we should be recoiling a little bit. It's like, 
okay, it's the word of God, so I believe it, but I'm not liking that too much. Well, again, God anticipates our angst. You will say to me then, well, why does still find God still find fault? Meaning, well, look, if God, who's already admitted that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, why does he still hold Pharaoh accountable and keep bringing the, 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 the tortures basically on him to get him to get God's people to leave? I mean, it's a good question. We have to admit that. He says, so why do you still find, why do you find fault with Pharaoh? Who can resist God's will? Here's the answer. If you think the previous ones were unsatisfactory, the answer is, who are you, oh man, answering back to God? Huh? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? And I mean, I've got, you know, I was in the plastics factory of many of you know, waiting for you guys to get a clue and call me here for all those years in the plastics factory. One of the machines that I worked on was called an injection molding machine where hot, hot plastic, you know, is injected in this thing and then it comes out and there's molds and it goes into the molds and we did all sorts of things. We did all the little, I can't even mention the thing, car parts, uh, Awana, little award bars, you know, by the, by the hundreds of thousands and all of that. So I'd sit in there. It was really exciting. You sit there for nine hours a day and this big door would go, and then it would go, and it would go, and it would spit out whatever the part was we were making that day. Usually, though, the parts came in in plastic sheets of multiple parts, like a dozen or ten, whatever. And my exciting role, for which I was now at this point held a master's degree and was hospital administrator and all that, it was very challenging work. I would take it, I had to look at it while this thing's going, and ready to spit another one out. And I'd have to make sure that everything met kind of the QC, quality control. And when it didn't, I would clip off the ones that were nasty and throw them in a big trash bucket here. And the ones that we could keep, I would put over here. Now, never, ever once in my six years or so that I worked there, did I ever have one of those discarded plastic parts rise up and say, Hey! Why are you throwing us here in the trash can instead of over there with the good stuff? And if that ever did happen, I wouldn't have reported it for obvious reason. Now you go, okay, that's absurd. That's the illustration God in his wisdom is using. Now we say, well, all right, first of all, we say that's absurd because that's plastic. It's an inanimate object. We are at least animate. Yes, but what we don't understand and what God is showing is the, the disparity between that plastic part and us is probably closer than even the disparity between us and the creator who made us. So we say, well, that's absurd. That would never happen. That's right, because the part is not going to say to the creator, hey, why have you done this? And God is saying, will the created one say to the creator, hey, I don't like this. Why did you do this? Give me some answers. 
That's what the scriptures say. You can like it, you can reject it, but there it is. And then he just gives another example, piling right on that one, or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. It's entirely up to the discretion of the one in whose hands that lump of clay is and going on the centering wheel. God is God, and he does not answer to anything in his creation. And while we are at the apex of creation, for sure, and we are distinct from creation because we have within us what is called the impress, if you will, of God, the imago Dei, the image of God within us, and that distinguishes us from the rest of the created order. But we are still only part of the creation that God had spoke into existence. When Job went on his long rant in the book by that same name, God finally puts Job in his place after patiently sitting back and letting Job go on for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And I mean, Job is, man, he's like, you know what? And he's saying to his friends, right? And they were giving him all kinds of bad counsel and advice and everything. And Job's like, look, you know what? If I just, if if God just gave me audience, you know, for five minutes, boy, I could give him a piece of my mind. And I know that he'd go, golly, Job, I never thought of that. But God doesn't say anything. God just lets him go. And then finally... God says, okay, rant time is over. It's time for Job to learn a lesson and to grow a little bit more in his faith. God helps Job to see that there is one God and Job is not him. And as such, God did not have to answer Job. And he never does throughout the book of Job. What he did, though, was he brought about a spectacular, glorious, and very positive and pleasing outcome for Job. And why was that? It was because Job finally got a clue. And here's how Job got a clue. God breaks forth. He says to Job for quite a lengthy period of time, Job, I've got a few things to ask you. And then we can talk if you still want. Where were you, Job, when uh, when I spoke and created the oceans? Job, where were you when I created the solar system? Nah. Where were you when I created all the solar systems? Where were you when I put the Pleiades, the constellation Pleiades, the stars, the gathering of stars, the ga- in the galaxies, in the galaxies in the sky? Where were all those? Job, if you're so, so, so important and you're so powerful and mighty and big, can you draw Leviathan? And there's debate as to what Leviathan is, but for, for our purposes, the point is, so the, the, the blue whale, largest uh, mammal, I think on, on the earth, you know, over a hundred feet long, it's a, the biggest whale out there. Job, could you, could you go to the shore there and just kind of, uh, uh, uh grab the blue whale, and and bring him in here. And of course, Job's just getting lower and lower with all the questions, and he's not saying anything. And finally, Job responds. In chapter 42 of the book, 
I know, God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Well, here it is. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Oh, we're seeing with clarity. Things too wondrous and wonderful for me, which I did not know. So hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. So again, what has changed? Here it is. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. And therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What Job truly knew, and can't we relate to this? I would call it, you know, not simply head knowledge, but certainly, you know what? I know way more than what I apply concerning my faith. And I know more, way more up here than is actually part and parcel, I would say, of my, my constitution, right? That's true of all of us. So it wasn't that Job was just going through motions and everything. He truly did love the Lord. But God took him from a place of that arrogance of, boy, you know, I and me, and you got it, and you do some splaining. And, and, and once he did that, Job went, I get it. Before, I only heard about you now. I see. Now I see. And it means much more than simply the light coming into his eyes and optic nerve stimulated in the brain translating it into visions or what have you. Do you know why so many adult Christians have such a hard time coping with the world, coping with their friends' lives, coping with their families' lives, coping with their own lives? It is because they have effectively accepted and live by a borrowed faith. Much in the way that we've talked about in the past when it comes to baptism and all of that, that children raised in Christian homes develop a borrowed faith from their parents. But until and unless that adult sees God through eyes of disciplined faith for themselves, it will not sustain them in times of challenge and trial and hardship. Many Christians today, by not having a developed, disciplined faith, but a largely borrowed faith, will stagnate at best, and at worst, they will fall away. Just as children obtain a borrowed faith from their parents, from their Sunday school teachers, or from their pastors, many, many Christian adults also have borrowed faith from their pastors, or their podcast gurus, or their online devotionals, or their commentaries, or their favorite Christian authors. Rather than having personally wrestled and are wrestling with the heart and the mind of God as revealed in his inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words to mankind. Which prompts me to ask, how is your time in the word? Do you know why the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries flourishes in times of persecution? And before that, the people of God ended up eventually time and time and time and time again flourishing in times of persecution and hardship. It is because the casual attenders, the convenience Christians, the posers and all the rest tend to be very quickly weaned out 
in times of trial and tribulation. And that's because borrowed faith will not sustain. In those times of woe, borrowed faith either grows and matures into a disciplined faith, seeing God with one's own eyes of faith, like Job, which changes everything. Or it wanes, it shrivels up, it shrinks into a weakling faith that becomes utterly dependent then on the mercy, if you will, of the impersonal circumstances. God is God, and he does not answer to anything or anyone in all of his creation. 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 11. Let's go back to Doeg. Remember how he was detained at the sanctuary? We talked about this last week. I contend that he was detained actively by God because God is going to use, as we're going to see, this ruthless, very flawed individual to be a step on the path to getting rid of the people's choice king, Saul, and installing the divine choice king, David, in God's timing and in God's ways because he knows all things. And it raises, again, plenty of questions, which are unanswered as far as I can tell in my 40 plus years of study of the scriptures. While Doeg was detained at the sanctuary, he happened happened to overhear the location of where David was hiding, as well as some of the other details of the, the narrative. And so Doeg spills his intel to King Saul. In light of Doeg's information then, Saul takes the information that Doeg gives him and he summons Ahimelech the high priest, who is the one that was giving shelter to David now, of whom Doeg told Saul he gave David Goliath's sword. He's not only giving him protection, but he equipped him now with the sword of Goliath and he also gave him food for his journeys and some supplies. So Saul accuses the priest of collusion with David in light of Doeg's dossier to which Ahimelech tweets the following. Verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king and, oops, comma, said, sorry. And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Ahimelech now has taken up the cause of David going, wow, what? What? What is your problem? No, there's nobody as loyal as David to you, Saul. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? No, far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Ahimelech saying, look, I don't know why you're so angry at me. I don't know anything of what you're talking about. My only knowledge of David is that he is a man that you brought into your house to console you when the demons were afflicting you and everything else. And I thought you were a fan. I don't know what you're talking about. And Ahimelech truly is blameless, knowing nothing about Saul's beef with David. David is not fomenting a political coup. He asked for supplies. The priest gave it to him. But Saul has made it clear that he is in, his intention is to remove David from the planet Earth. And so David said, hey, you got any weapons laying around here? Totally defensive. In verse 17, Saul, in all of his paranoia, 
orders his not-so-loyal servants to execute all the priests. And, really not surprisingly, they refuse. Why is it not surprising? Because all of them were Jews, with the exception of Doeg. And so as Jews, they're being ordered to execute 85 of their fellow Jews and priests who are responsible for carrying out the whole worship and ritual of Judaism by which come the sacrifices and everything else and the temporary covering of sin. So I was like, no, what? We're not going to kill our priests. Are you? And so they're not having anything of it. Oh, but that's no problem for Saul because there's always faithful Doeg who didn't share the same reverence for the priesthood, being an Edomite. And so without hesitation, Saul orders the execution of the 85 priests. And for reasons which are not clear in the text, Doeg does so gladly uh, and then goes on to slaughter as well the citizens of the city of Nob, which were innocently giving refuge to David. Verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahituf, named Aviatar, escaped and he fled after David. And Aviatar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Aviatar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, detained, remember, at the temple, the sanctuary rather, that he would surely tell Saul, which gives even more credence to what I said last week supporting the fact that he wasn't just remaining there to in some ritual of conversion of which the Bible says nothing, but he was detained by God for the purpose of being able to glean this intel. But David also knows that he is also indirectly responsible for the deaths of those priests and for the citizens, the good people of Nov, by dragging them into Saul's vendetta against David unwittingly to be sure, but nevertheless. I have brought about the death of every person, David says, in your father's household to Aitu or Aviatar. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. Safe meaning, well, at least you'll have protection-ish until the day that Saul succeeds and kills me. And by the way, just, just, you know, it's kind of interesting to note that this will, this is the last time that we will hear or read about Doeg in the entire Bible. He comes on the scene very quickly. He's mentioned only, what, three, four maybe times in the book of First Samuel and then never again until, and this is the only one exception, until Psalm 52. And he appears in Psalm 52 because that is David's worshipful meditation. Remember, the Psalms are are songs. And it's David's worshipful meditation of this very narrative that we've been talking about and about Doeg in particular. David writes, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Again, referring to Doeg. The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor. O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue. You know what David is doing here? David is venting to the Lord. He's giving expression about what he's thinking and what he's feeling about Doeg and all the, the horrid uh, you know, murders and everything that came about by the hands of this evil, wicked man. And by the way, David does this frequently throughout the Psalms. 
And when you read what are commonly called the imprecatory psalms, they will make your eyeballs bulge if you've ever read them with the kinds of things that emanate from David's heart and mind wishing upon his enemies and yet God chose to put them in and leave them there. There's a reason for that. But this still spawns even more questions then. Psalm 52, though, continues with David reciting, and he's reciting again, not for God's benefit, but for his benefit. And now he starts reciting the promises of God concerning the wicked. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent, Doeg, and uproot you from the land of the living. David then changes his tone and his focus in his song to encourage himself with the contrasted fate of those who are like Doeg in their wickedness. And he compares them and contrasts them to those who fear and love the Lord. Here's how he finishes Psalm 52. So that's what's going to happen to Doeg. That's what Doeg is like. But the righteous, they will see and they will fear and will laugh at him saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and I will give you thanks forever because you have done it and I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. If you struggle with anger management, don't we all? That's why I turned off, truly, went on an absolute news fast five or six years ago. Even Fox. I just couldn't take what my wife accurately called the yelling shows. There's no dialogue going on. He says, Okay, that was edifying. And I just go away going, <laughs> pretty much like that. And if you struggle with those things still today, and I do, because, you know, you can't, you can't run away and you shouldn't run away completely, unless it's the mainstream media, then absolutely. But don't bury your stuff. Don't bury your angers and your hurts. Speak them out to the Lord. Vent to the Lord. I'm telling you, he can take it. Job proves that. It's like, I don't want to tell the Lord what I'm really thinking and feeling. He knows already. You're not informing him, and it's not for him. It's for you. But then also resolve to walk in the way of trusting God and his holy character. And with that holy character comes his holy hatred of all things wicked, as well as all the many promises that he has given to right every wrong. Become so wearisome when we do not see divine justice played out in our time frame, doesn't it? It really does, which is why I love Asaph in Psalm 73. And I'll close with this. Asaph was a faithful lover of Jehovah. 
But man, oh man, you just read through there and you'll see I'm not really exaggerating. I mean, I'm being a little theatrical when I retell kind of his story. But just look at Psalm 73. It is so eye-opening. And Asaph's going, okay, you know what? Yeah, God, I know, I believe, I believe, I believe what I believe. I know, I got all that. I get that. I get about the, you know, justice and your holiness and everything else. But you know what, God, the fact of the matter is, is that every day that I live, what I'm seeing is, I'm seeing the rich grow richer and the poor get poorer. I'm seeing the fat grow fatter and the hungry growing hungrier and all in between. Those who do bad are the ones who prosper. Those who do good are the ones who get the shaft. And I'm just telling you, I can't take it anymore. But, no, thanks. <laughs> but then he says, Then I came into the household of God, into the house of God, and I perceived their ends. Say, Seems rather anticlimactic. No. You see, what Asaph is saying is that after he was done ranting and everything he was saying was true and all of that, he said, when I came into the house of God, which means in the presence of God and started thinking about everything I just mentioned, about his goodness, his promises, his holiness, and people are not getting away with anything, it's just not, God's not on our time frame or anything else. He said, then I saw what their ends are going to be. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not in my lifetime, but they are coming and they will get what is coming. Didn't you say, oh, that doesn't sound very Christian to me justice not man's justice but perfect consummate holy god type justice is an absolute virtue and it is that justice that gives us hope that one day that which is now being declared right but is wrong will be reversed again because god is going to fix it once and for all and those who believe will be the beneficiaries of all of that goodness. We have an all-powerful God. I'm telling you, this, I, I don't know what this, you know, this series up to this point has done for all of you out there. I mean, I've had a lot of good feedback over the months and everything, but, but I know for me, I've still got so much still up here that needs to come down here and play out there concerning the affairs of the world and the affairs of Washington. My, my friends, I cannot comprehend how you live in that environment day after day. But thanks be to God that he has raised up men and women who are willing to do that. And here and there, there are some who actually do it with a view of the righteousness of God Almighty and integrity and goodness and enforcing and reinforcing those things in our country that are close to the heart and the mind of the Almighty. Thanks be to God for Congressman Poliquin, for his press secretary. Did I see a bullseye, by the way, on your... When you, you lifted up your... I, anyway. Thank you, Brandon. We need to pray for our leaders. We're enjoined in scripture to do so. But take heart. God does know what he's doing. He is in control. And I say that right now, more from up here than here. But I know it's true. And we have a hope of the eternal one. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, we pray for President Trump. 
pray, O oh God, that those things that are near and dear to your heart and mind that he is implemented in trying to implement, that you would only prosper those things and set them forth, Lord. And for Congressman Paul Aquin and his whole staff, Father, I so pray for a supernatural protection from the evil one, for you have told us too clearly that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against Democrats, liberal Republicans, or any other parties or stripes. We wrestle against the principalities and powers in dark places. And Lord, you tell us they will only be defeated by faithful people and even more than that, by us beseeching you and praying out to you and crying out in prayer. And Lord, putting our feet where our own mouths of protest and of proclamation are ourselves and walking in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray, thanking you, Jesus. Amen.